CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. This Ben Jarofsky Show, Benny J Bonus Interview is brought to you in part by the International Brotherhood of Electrical Workers, Local 9, the International Union of Operating Engineers, Local 150, and the Chicago Federation of Labor. Benny J, take it away. Bonus time on the Ben Jarofsky Show. As I speak, it's Friday, September 18th, 2020, but this is a podcast. You could be listening any day, any month, any year, but that's the day I'm doing the interview. And just to tell you what's going on in the world, I will now read a headline from today's New York Times. Home delivered as always. I'm supporting the industry. You're welcome, New York Times. Here we go. Smoldering risk in rugged Sierra, a wilderness lifelong defined by dangers. Talking about the fires that are just burning endlessly on the West Coast, a product, in my humble opinion, of uh, climate change. Donald Trump, the president of the United States, officially denies uh, climate change is reality. He also denies that the virus is real. He's denying a lot of things lately. And that'll be uh, a topic of conversation with my bonus guest. As I always do with bonus guests, I ask my distinguished guest to introduce themselves. So distinguished guest, introduce yourself. I'm Leslie Harris. I'm a professor of history and African-American studies at Northwestern University. Yes. Uh, thank you very much, Leslie Harris, for coming on the show. And just I'm going to tell folks a little bit uh, about my pursuit of Leslie Harris as a guest of the show. I read an essay she wrote for Politico back in March, pre-pandemic. Uh, and I helped fact check the 1619 project. The Times ignored me. A fascinating essay by Professor Leslie Harris from Northwestern. I said, oh, i got to get Leslie Harris on the show. I, I, Leslie, I just dropped the ball. I didn't reach out. Then Tom Cotton, Senator Tom Cotton of Arkansas, said something absolutely preposterous about slavery and the founding fathers. I said, I got to get Leslie Harris uh, on the, the show. And I finally reached out to you. And um, here you are. So thank you so much for coming on. Uh, I'm going to start this by... I think I told you this, reading the last paragraph that the essay you wrote for Politico and that and using that as an introduction to get you to talk a little bit about yourself and your work. Okay. Um, and here is that last paragraph. I'm going to read it from the essay in Politico. Everybody, anybody can download the full essay and read it themselves. Quote, as someone who has spent most of my career as a historian working with museums, K-12 teachers and the media, to make the history of slavery and race accessible to the general public, I know how important listening to and reading these kinds of histories is. It is easy to correct facts. It is much harder to correct a worldview that consistently ignores and distorts the role of African Americans and race in our history in order to present white people as all powerful and solely in possession to the keys of equality, freedom, 
and democracy. At least that is the corrective history toward which the 1619 Project is moving, if imperfectly. The 1619 Project is, of course, you talk about on the show many times, a project um, or overseen by the New York Times. Before we get into that, into the specific issues, Leslie, why don't you touch upon uh, your career, uh, the, the, the books you've written, and the passion that drives you uh, in your endeavors? Sure. Thanks for asking. I, uh, my first body of work is on African-Americans in New York City. And I, um, uh, as a graduate student, started working on a dissertation to examine the history of African-Americans in New York before the Civil War. Um, at the time that I started, I knew very little about slavery in New York or slavery in the northern states. I grew up in the South. I thought, as many people still do, that slavery was mostly about the South. And um, I was, but my book was actually about the end of slavery originally, the end of slavery in New York. And I realized that no one knew that slavery had been in New York. And so I then began, uh, I realized I had to add that history to the beginning of my book. And most people now know me as an historian of slavery in particular. Um, I'm part of a group of historians who have uh, contributed to our growing understanding of how important slavery was for every aspect of the nation. Slavery existed in all of the 13 American colonies um, before we were the United States. The economics of slavery contributed enormously to the success of, I would say, the Americas, that European settlement, agriculture, uh, the economy that was established was all due uh, the labor that drove that economy was slave labor. And of course, uh, for the United States, even when uh, slavery ended in the northern states uh, in the uh, years after the Revolutionary War, it continued in the southern states and slave produced cotton was the major export um, of the United States in the years leading up to the Civil War. So slavery became um, something I was very interested in, and not simply the economics of slavery, but also its impact on society, on politics, its impact on people. What did it mean to be someone who owned a person? What did it mean to be owned by someone else? These, I think, are really important questions um, about our history in the United States, and uh, they, we, I think that we should understand them in order to understand what happened. Um, why did we have the Civil War? What does it mean that we're a nation founded in freedom, quote unquote, freedom from Great Britain, but we still held on to slavery for a very long time? Now, you talk about the the shifting views of slavery that historians uh, have had over time. Talk about, go in a little more detail about that. Sort of like what was the view, and what is it now? So we really have to go back to the end of the Civil War, the end of slavery, to understand where historians came in. Um, when the Civil War ended slavery, um, that was a, an incredible moment, of course, for the nation. And as the nation came back together, North and South um, came back together over the next decades into the early 20th century, um, uh, the nation sort of re-knit itself together, if you will, on the backs of African-Americans. Um, both the North and the South began to deny the importance of African-Americans to history, began to deny the importance of slavery to history. Part of that denial was very racist, uh, this claim that African-American people are lazy, they don't work well, we're sorry we had to enslave them, we realized we were wrong, said some of the very first white historians of slavery, but we know that wasn't a good system. And ultimately it's not that important. 
uh, to our nation. And so for most of the 20th century, historians really did not, white mainstream historians, the majority of the historical profession did not really incorporate slavery as a meaningful part of U.S. history. This changed in the 60s with the civil rights movement, with the visibility on TV, television is a huge part of it. People realize that African Americans um, had this uh, enormous investment in the ideals of uh, the nation. And so historians began to think differently about the history. Um, and so uh, uh, that the, also African Americans began writing history as well. And um, they had been writing history before, but they had been largely ignored. They became integrated into the uh, mainstream historical profession. And we began to think differently about the importance of slavery to U.S. history. Um, this is a process of really bringing two different histories together. A sort of very celebratory, for some very good reasons, of, you know, sort of white man's history, if you will, on the one hand, understanding the founding fathers, understanding that they set up these ideals, and then on the other hand, understanding that many of those founding fathers also supported slavery, mm-hmm. all enslaved people, uh, held to hierarchies that we don't hold to today, but we really have to work that out. The contradictions between slavery and freedom that are rooted in the foundation of our nation. The Civil War was one place where we worked that out. In history books is another place where we work out that contradiction. Uh, you talk about uh, sort of the judgment that many historians, uh, white historians, made uh, about that uh, ultimately slavery is not important to our history. I know you can't go into the minds of the people who wrote that or who wrote histories with that theme. I would, I'm going to use the pronoun he because I assume most of them are men. No, I know no. you, 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 can't, you can't go in, uh, into their minds, but what do you think – their objective was when uh, with that stand, with that viewpoint? For some, it wasn't even a conscious objective. Um, you know, they were trained in a particular way. They were trained at a particular moment in time when, when we think about history, we think about the actors of history as uh, presidents, governmental officials, you know, as the, the big men of history. That's almost quite literally. Or, you know, the wealthy. And so what happened in the 60s and 70s and down to today, we're still discussing and working out, is what do you, what do you uh, it's called this movement of history from the bottom up. Mm-hmm. Understanding that not only do the quote-unquote great men of history, our presidents, our governmental officials, et cetera, they make history, but so do workers. So do people whose names we may not even know. And how do we bring both of those histories together to understand how we became the nation that we are? And so for some people, political history, traditional history doesn't include those people. And particularly when we look at the founding of the nation, for most of the timing of the historical profession, looking at the founding fathers and their ideas is the way to mark um, what happened during that time. Many historians of the early era um, uh, at the time, you know, in, in this early period, were really thinking about the founding fathers, about white men, about the Revolutionary War, 
um, about uh, relationships to Europe, you know, diplomatic relationships and things like that. They were not as concerned with the lived experience even of these men, per se. I mean, maybe they were, you know, Abigail Adams and John Adams or George Washington and Martha Washington. But people didn't really study very much the relationships of these people to enslaved people or even to other kinds of workers they may have had relationships with. It was really about these uh, great families, great white men, et cetera. All right. And so moving forward from that, the New York Times uh, presented a project, the 1619 project that was dedicated uh, to the objective of sort of what? Uh, teaching people the the significance of slavery in almost our everyday life. Uh, talk briefly about what role you had with that project. I know you didn't have like a, you were not a writer of it, but they asked you to be a fact checker. This is important because we're going to lead into the reaction against the 1619 project, which is astounding what's going on with that. So just talk a little bit about your role with that project. Sure. I received an email from a research editor within the New York Times who, um, uh, she had a series of uh, statements that she wanted to check out with me. It began with some statements from my first book on um, African-Americans in New York, and she just wanted to make sure um, how had I discovered this information, how did I know, and I you know, explained where it came from. And, um, and that was mostly about the number, I think it's 40% of uh, New Yorkers owned slaves in the 17th, in the 18th century, excuse me. And so that sounds like a huge figure, and it is a huge percentage. Um, and so she just wanted more information on how I came to that figure. And so I gave her my, you know, basically my footnotes, my sources, et cetera. And then she had other discrete sentences or ideas that she wanted to um, check with me. And one of them was this uh, idea that um, uh, the colonists, uh, fought the American Revolution in order to protect uh, slavery. And I said, well, no. <laughs> um, Great Britain was not a big threat to the system of slavery. They held these sugar islands. Jamaica was probably you know, the most well-known. Barbados, these other sugar islands. Slavery did not, the, Great, the British did not end slavery until, uh, was it 1834? So really the 1830s. Um, to me, uh, most American colonies, I don't think, colonists, I don't think, thought that Great Britain was going to end slavery. And Great Britain certainly didn't end slavery before, you know, it did ultimately, but not in this time period. There were discussions and debates about slavery. There were British people who were working to end slavery, but it was not a big deal. Anyway, we went back and forth about it. Um, and But then when uh, the piece came out, uh, I was on a radio interview with Nicole Hannah-Jones, and she made this statement that, People didn't know that uh, the colonists went to war to preserve slavery, and I was very surprised. I didn't know what the 1619 Project was, so when I was being asked these questions, I had no idea where that sentence fit into the project itself. I had not seen the magazine that morning. Um, you know, I hadn't even seen a full copy of it. So, um, so that's where that's where that happened. I did later get a copy of the magazine, and I read. You know, of course, all of it and this uh, special section that they had of primary sources as well. And I said, well, you know, historians make mistakes, too. People make mistakes. I'm upset that that line is in there. I, I think it's very problematic. But there's so much good that is in this collection. There's so many different writers. There's so many issues that are being brought to the surface that 
I think it's going to be okay. But as you know, it, it has not been okay on some level. Explain that. What do you mean it's not been okay on some level? Okay. You know, people have really taken that one line and a few other interpretations. And um, the first thing is that they've acted like that, uh, th- those individual uh, lines um, are uh, – something that means that we should not read any of it, that this whole 1619 project is illegitimate. I, you know, many, I, I really question whether some of the critics have even read the whole project. Yeah. Um, there was a way in which uh, people focused on certain parts of it, and then it just gets picked up and repeated over and over again. So one of the things after I published my essay in March, I received uh, quite a few emails. A lot of people liked the essay very much. Um, and I still get a few emails and I always say, have you actually read the 1619 project? Have you actually read all of it? Mm-hmm. Because there are many essays. There are many artistic pieces within it. It is not, it's a, it's a very detailed project. Um, it's not about, Um, I would say it's not even about a single idea. It's about a set of ideas. And it asks Americans to engage in a thought process. You can engage in a thought process, and then after it's done, go, well, I believe some of it, but not all of it. The thought process is that slavery is the beginning of the American nation. The thought process is that uh, slavery and slave labor enabled the American nation to succeed. Well, I don't think that's too difficult a thought process. That's very true. The thought process is also that slavery and racism are connected and that there are legacies we have today. Well, I think we can see those too. There are essays on sugar, sugar, which was uh, a slave crop. It was successful because of enslaved labor and sugar still impacts us today in terms of health, in terms of diabetes rates. Um, there's an essay about um, medical science, which um, discusses the ways in which some um, medical researchers uh, in the 19th century thought that black people had different physiology from white people and how some of those ideas still are in use today in ways that are damaging to medical health. These are important things for us to know as citizens and as a nation. And um, I really, given the focus on just a few things in the 1619 Project and the degree to which I don't see these other issues being discussed at all, um, I just wonder how many people have actually read the 1619 Project. Well, I'm going to go one step further. Uh, I think many of the people who use the 1619 Project uh, to fit their political narratives and agenda right now, Leslie, uh, not only haven't read it, have no intention of reading, don't care what's in it. And I think it's being used in a larger political game. I'm going to give you my theory. Feel free to vigorously disagree with me if you do. Or uh, if you don't, um, elaborate on your own thoughts. Okay. I feel as though... Uh, that the 1619 Project, which I read, uh, and I I did not know about that, your objection, until I read your essay to it. Okay, so that's... um, I think the 1619 Project challenges the notion that America is the greatest country in the history of the universe, in the history of the galaxy, in the history of the solar system. It's like standing for the national anthem, Colin Kaepernick, all over again, okay? And so... 
all people know is that there's this project that the fake news New York Times produced to undermine the greatest country in the world, which is now led by the greatest president the, the country has ever had. We are blessed. Every day we are blessed to have him as our president. And so that 1619 project that's all people know. It's 1619. The first time I ever heard Trump talk about it, let's say, I don't know if you heard this interview with Chris Wallace. I wish we, I wish we played it because he's stumbling. He's trying to remember what it is. I'm telling you, he couldn't remember the year. I think he got the year ultimately right, but he couldn't remember it was project after 1619. And Chris Wallace is looking at him like, are you of sound mind? The answer is no. And, so you get dragged into that, just so you know this. Uh, you're going to be used, whether you want to be or not, as, well, this historian at Northwestern says, you know, they, they haven't read your essay. Let alone the 1619 Project, and your essay is a lot shorter than the 16. So this is... This is what we're at, and I believe it's a conscious attempt to rewrite history. Uh, eventually, I believe they will go so far, there'll be slavery denial. There's Holocaust denial. Why won't we have slavery denial? There'll be people who say it's exaggerated, didn't really happen that way. You can't believe everything they're telling you, and this is the start. It's a, they're trying to rewrite history to fit a narrative. What's your thoughts on that? Well, Ben, I have to tell you, there has already been slavery denial. So there was slavery denial by the early 20th century. All If you think of films like Gone with the Wind and other films um, uh, earlier than that, um, these are films that romanticize slavery, that say that slave, enslaved people were happy to be slaves. You know, the mammy figure who was happy to take care of her white family and the white children. Um, there has been slavery denial. And we keep seeing the denial, the piece that people wanted to deny and could still want to deny is the violence of enslavement. What does it take to force people to labor in the way that they did? What does it mean if whites who own slaves, who because of their ownership of slaves, were at the top of the political class and the economic class, what does it mean that they abused enslaved people? What does that say? Now, greatest nation in the world, not greatest nation in the world, as an historian, I don't even think in those terms. What I think about is, what are the complex ways in which people have organized society? And for those of us who are looking at history, what worked and what didn't? Slavery, we've decided, does not work. And the only way that we can be honest about that and be clear about that is to know all the bad things that happened. And, and I, 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 you know, you're right. I just don't understand why people can't hold a complex view of our nation. Yes, there are some amazing ideals. Enslaved people knew that. They wanted to be part of those amazing ideals. African-Americans for uh, the, the lifetime of our country have fought to be included as equal partners in these ideals and have been denied that. And so in order to rectify that and to really see African-Americans, not to mention other groups, as part of our nation, we really have to be honest with the ways in which we have not seen them as part of the nation. So um, 
I, you know, slavery denial has been happening for a very long time, mm-hmm. by which I mean the denial of the brutality, the denial of its legacies, the fact that, you know, once enslaved people were free, people still did not see them as equals, despite the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments, ending slavery, establishing national citizenship, and establishing the right to vote. Well, I, um, I'm thinking about what you said. I, I'm not sh- certain that they are intellectually incapable of grasping complex theories and realize that there's some good things about America, bad things. I think it's uh, willful ignorance. And this is my humble opinion that if Senator Tom Cotton or Donald Trump or any right winger uh, undercuts the significance of slavery, Mm -hmm. then they're undercutting the need to address, to redress, to the byproducts of slavery. So you could say, well, there's no need to finance. Uh, they could take it down to mental health programs uh, on the south side of Chicago because that's exaggerated. You know, there's no need for affirmative, definitely affirmative action programs, unless they're trying to justify putting Clarence Thomas on the court, then that's, then they believe in affirmative action. So that I believe that to me, when I, when I talk about using history to fit their political narrative, that's what I think they're up to. What do you think? No, I absolutely agree with you there. And the thing is, if you follow that logic out, you really left with this, been thinking about this a long time. If you say, well, slavery wasn't that bad, Jim Crow segregation, and by this I don't mean just in the South, but there's a lot of segregation in the North too, the restriction of black people from all kinds of opportunities, economic, educational, wasn't that bad. Then you're left with this narrative that says, what's wrong with black people? They have had plenty of everything. Why can't they be successful? And it really leaves, it it is a narrative that says that black people are incapable of surviving in this nation. And that's a very old narrative. And it's the wrong narrative. I I agree with you that um, there's no intellectual uh, uh, inability. Well, with some people, perhaps. <laughs> yeah. But I, I won't die. I won't diagnose here. But, um, but for many people, you know, it, it, I agree with you that it is a willful denial of um, the possibility of black people if they were actually allowed to participate fully in American society historically. And you're right; there is a denial of the need to redress some of these wrongs. Um, what you know? What it's a lot. Of, you know, a lot of people say if you keep holding people down, how do you expect them uh, to get up after a certain period of time? And unfortunately, we had a very physical uh, representation of that with the George Floyd murder. Mm-hmm. You know. Yeah, uh, so much of this uh, has just exploded to the surface uh, since the George Floyd murder. Uh, I will now read you a quote from President Trump. Uh, This is from today's or yesterday's New York Times, I I think. I'm I'm losing track of dates here, Leslie. Anyway, it it was either today or yesterday. Oh, no, he said it yesterday. It's in today's New York Times. Mm -hmm. Speaking at the National Archives Museum, 
Trump vowed to counter what he called an emerging classroom narrative that, quote, America is a wicked and racist nation, unquote. And he said he would create a new, quote, 1776 commission to help restore patriotic education to our schools, unquote. The president reiterated his condemnations of demonstrators who tear down monuments to historical American figures. And he even sought to link the Democratic presidential nominee, Joseph Biden, to the removal of a founding father's statue in Biden's home state, Delaware. Quote, our heroes will never be forgotten, Trump said. Our youth will be taught to love America. End of quote. So how do you think this is going to impact the teaching of of history in our schools? You know, my biggest worry, there will always be good teachers. There will always be people who who have access to knowledge. But that knowledge is going to be more and more available to elites, to people who pay for um, an incredible education. Um, uh, There will be a division in terms of what people do and don't know. Um, of American history, not to mention other um, topics in our schools, from science to math to whatever. This kind of uh, divisive rhetoric about education in particular is uh, something that's really defined. uh, It really helped to set up a a real gap in learning. Um, The other thing is that... um, you know, love of our country. Love is very complicated. One of the amazing things about Nicole Hannah-Jones's essay is that this is not an essay about hate. This is an essay about the complex nature of loving your country when you're African-American. And when you realize that um, this nation with all of these ideals has not always loved you back. You you can think all the way back to Michelle Obama um, when uh, Barack Obama was running for president. She said, you know, I'm uh, experiencing pride in my country, I think, in in a way that I never had before. And everyone criticized her. Well, you know, there are some bad things that happen to people in uh, to black people in this country. It's a very complicated love affair that African-Americans have with America. And to really understand that, we have got to start with slavery and then understand Jim Crow as well and uh, uh, terroristic violence against um, African-Americans. Yeah, I have to tell you, uh, I was not one of the people criticizing Michelle Obama for that line. The only time I ever criticized Michelle Obama is uh, in 2016 when she said, uh, when they go low, we go high. I thought that was the worst political advice I'd ever heard anybody gave, give. And I don't think she even believed it as soon as she said it. I know the history of Barack Obama uh, as he came up through the ranks in Chicago. And he went low when he had to go low. So, uh, but I, had to, I just had to just correct you on that one, that minor point. I think it was Doc Rivers. I don't know if you're a basketball fan. There's a basketball coach named Doc Rivers, uh, who's a coach of the Los Angeles Clippers. He comes from the Chicagoland area. He's one of my favorite uh, coaches in the NBA. And he very passionate gave this um, this is impromptu remarks at a press conference uh, after a game when the players were talking about doing a boycott uh, to mm-hmm. protest police brutality. He said, mm-hmm. "quote And I'm not I can't say direct quote because I'm doing this on the top of my head, Leslie. We love our country, but our country doesn't love us back." There you go. Said yes. that. Yeah. And it was like a moment. Like and then the players. He said that the next day. It was so profound, Leslie. The next day, the players voted to suspend the playoffs for about two or three days. Right. I think they were motivated. 
Mm-hmm. Um, yes. But all right. So let me ask you what uh, Tom Cotton is up to. Tom Cotton is a senator. Uh, from the state of Arkansas, I believe, don't quote me, he's Harvard educated. So he has, he definitely has, unless somebody, you know, unless he used uh, inside connections to get into Harvard, he didn't deserve it. He, you would think he has the intellectual capability of grasping that contradiction that you were just alluding to, okay? So he would not be on that list of people who doesn't have the intellectual mm-hmm. capability. He said, he was saying, we have to study slavery and its role and impact on the development of our country because otherwise we can't understand our country. As the founding father said, it was the necessary evil upon which the union was built. But the union was built in a way, as Lincoln said, to put slavery on the course to its ultimate extinction. I've never heard a bigger pile of baloney. And I'm no historian, Leslie Harris. I've never, I've, I just, some, I've lived in this country. There was a civil war, thousands and thousands of people. You had to drag the slave, the South from slavery, kicking, screaming, fighting, shooting. What the heck? How can this guy say such utter nonsense? I know. It's it is it's very illogical. I mean, we not only did we have a civil war, after the civil war, we had to have three amendments to fix it. Yes. So, no, the Constitution did not fix everything at the beginning. It was not a magical unfolding. Uh, It was, as you said, a bloody civil war and three amendments and a lot of fighting in between even with those amendments, you know? So, no, you know, and I don't know why there's this desire for perfection. You know, it is not a perfect nation. It never can be. These were not perfect people. And uh, people later had to fix it. (laughs) And so they did through a bloody civil war. And um, there's no need for that. But, you know, I think you're right, though, that by creating this non-event, the non-event of slavery, it was necessary, but it wasn't so bad. Then there are all kinds of things that we're not responsible for in the present day. You know, I, I've said before that if you can inherit wealth, you can inherit responsibility. You know, many uh, on the right uh, have this sort of, uh, what do they call it, original intent, interpretation of the Constitution. It's like, well, original intent was not to end slavery, so we have a problem right there. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> original intent yeah. was, was not to have everyone vote. So when the nation began, if you were not a property owner, You could not vote, even as a white male. So we have lived into places that the founding fathers themselves could not have imagined. If we really want to go all the way back to the beginning, yeah, we'll still have slavery. We will also have a system where most people do not vote. A whole lot of people do not vote. Even some people who, uh, you know, they support other things at the founding might not be voting members. We live in a different place, and that is because we can continue to change and grow as a nation. And we really have to come to terms with that, but also recognize that there are legacies that we really have to undo if we want to continue um, to, pro- to progress. Uh, let's say I'm going to conclude the uh, conversation sort of where I began. Um, I ask you how in the world you keep your sanity. Uh, you dedicate so much of your, um, 
intellectual life to study this horrifically barbaric system. And then you have to deal with people like Trump and Tom Cotton, just like rewriting history. You know, I, I can now I can, you probably can empathize with like a climate scientist or something, you know, who has to listen to the garbage or, uh, you know, an epidemiologist who has to listen to Trump talk about injecting bleach or whatever. So like, how do you keep your, you know, your balance uh, yeah. when, you, when you have to confront all this stuff? Well, I'll tell you, um, one of the things that was so has been so hopeful, even in this terrible year of 2020, is that after the George Floyd murder, I was astounded. The nation and then the world stood up and said no. I was teaching about slavery when that happened. We were in our last week of classes as that was unfolding. And um, my students... One, we're grateful to be in a class about slavery because it helped them to make sense of what was happening. But also, you know, my freshmen, when I asked them how they were feeling this week and what was going on, this was um, after some of the um, mass protests had begun and people were already arguing, are these rioters, looters, are they really American, blah, blah, blah. My students said, you know, the thing we're worried about is that people are going to rewrite the history of this moment and say that this wasn't about George Floyd, but it was about rioting and looting. And we know that that's not the truth. And I said to them, then you have a responsibility to never forget that and to fight back against that. So my students, even I wasn't even thinking about history in that moment. I was literally thinking about that day. They are already thinking about the playbook of uh, miswriting history, misusing experiences. They are ready for the fight. And when I meet these students, these young people, that's what gives me hope. That they, they're, I don't think uh, the people we keep trying to constrain this even know what they have unleashed by the lies and the misuse of history. Uh, there is a group that is rising that is, is not going to sit down for this anymore. They are not having it. And so, you know, I live with that hope that ultimately these things will be rectified. Well, I absolutely hope that you are correct and uh, that I live to see the day where Tom Cotton says, what a jerk I have been and I apologize. <laughs> I don't know if that'll no, ever happen. I don't know about that, but <laughs> yeah. uh, I the day when he's voted out of office. Oh, that's that's. Let's start with the guy in the White House. This is me speaking, not Leslie Harris. This is Ben speaking, okay? So you can't mess with me. Well, you can, but you all know where I'm coming from anyway. Leslie Harris, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me. Uh, I'm just going to warn you right now. I so enjoyed this conversation. I'm probably going to reach out to you to bring you back. So I'm going to be bugging you down the road, okay? Well, thank you so much. I really appreciate it. I had a great time. All right. That's Leslie Harris. I'm Ben Jarofsky. Take care, everybody.